Last week, we were supposed to cover chapters 2 and 3. We primarily spent most of our time in chapter 2, discussing how this, uh, this history of Esther is quite different from what we think about when we think of, you know, the classic fairy tales, maybe Cinderella, right? These other women that get chosen to become queen, right? There's an invite that goes out. All the women come to maybe a party, They dance with the queen, and then they're chosen from that, right? That's not what happened here. Uh, What happens here is you are forcibly taken. There is no choice. You don't decide if you want to go or not. You're not kept from it by wicked stepsisters, stepmothers. Um, You're just taken. And then you're told this is what you're doing, right? And so that's what Esther did. She followed the advice she was given. She spent her night with the king. And then she was selected to be queen. And I hope that didn't ruin anyone's impression of Esther. Um, I don't think that says anything morally about Esther or Esther's character. I think it says that she is a woman caught in a very difficult situation, and she's handling it the best that she can. And so we got to the end of chapter 2, beginning of chapter 3, and we started talking about the man that we're introduced to in chapter 3 named Haman. And I want to back up and basically start this class uh, from chapter 3, verse 1, Uh, through chapter 4, Lord willing. So I'm going to begin by reading chapter 3 and 4. After these events, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, and advanced him and established his authority over all the princes who were with him. All the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for so the king had commanded concerning him. But Mordecai neither bowed down nor paid homage, Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, why are you transgressing the king's command? Now it was when they had spoken daily to him and he would not listen to them that they told Haman to see whether Mordecai's reason would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai neither bowed down nor paid homage to him, Haman was filled with rage, but he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had told him who the people of Mordecai were. Therefore, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, who were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. In the first month, which is the month Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, Pur, that is the lot, was cast before Haman from day to day and from month to month until the twelfth month, that is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, there is a certain people scattered and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of all other people, and they do not observe the king's laws, so it is not in the king's interest to let them remain. If it is pleasing to the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who carry on the king's business to put into the king's treasuries. Then the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. The king said to Haman, the silver is yours and the people also to do with them as you please. And the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month. And it was written just as Haman commanded to the king's satraps, to the governors who were over each province and to the princes of each people, each province according to its script, each people according to its language, being written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews, both young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, 
which is the month Adar, and to seize their possessions as plunder. A copy of the edict to be issued as law is in every province was published to all the peoples so that they should be ready for this day. The couriers went out impelled by the king's command uh, while the decree was issued at the citadel in Susa. And while the king and Haman sat down to drink, the city of Susa was in confusion. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the midst of the city and wailed loudly and bitterly. He went as far as the king's gate, for no one was to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. In each and every province where the command and decree of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting, weeping, and wailing, and many lay on sackcloth and ashes. Then Esther's maidens and her eunuchs came and told her, and the queen writhed in great anguish. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai and he, that he might remove the sackcloth from him, but he did not accept them. Then Esther summoned Hathak from the king's eunuchs, whom the king had appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. So Hathak went out to Mordecai to the city square in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact amount of money that Haman had promised to pay to the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict, which had been issued in Susa for their destruction that he might show Esther and inform her and to order her to go in to the king to implore his favor and plead with him for her people. Hathak came back and related Mordecai's words to Esther. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and ordered him to reply to Mordecai. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that for any man or woman who comes to the king to the inner court who is not summoned, he has but one law, that he be put to death unless the king holds out to him the golden scepter so that he may live. And I have not been summoned to come to the king for these 30 days. They related Esther's words to Mordecai. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not imagine that you and the king's palace can escape any more than all the Jews. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place and you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, go, assemble all the Jews who are found in Susa and, and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maidens will also will fast in the same way. And thus I will go into the king, which is not according to the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and did just as Esther had commanded him. So chapter three, again, we're introduced to this man, Haman. Haman is an Agagite. And we talked about last class that we, we know Agag, right? The, the descendant that Haman is supposed to be from, Agag. He was a king of Amalek, whom the Lord told Saul to kill and destroy. Saul kind of did that, right? He didn't really follow through on God's plan. He didn't completely destroy the Amalekites like God said. He saved Agag and he saved all their stuff and he saved the women and children. And Samuel was the one who actually killed Agag, right, for the Lord. He hewed him to pieces, it says. So we talked about how, you know, is this Haman a descendant of Agag? Um, you know, he could be, right? It doesn't say what they did with the women and children, so it's possible. Is this why Haman hates the Jews? I don't think so, right? Why? Why? It doesn't say Haman hates the Jews yet. We just... We're told he's Haman the Agagite, right? 
when doing some research, you may come across some commentators that say that, well, he hates the Jews because they killed his long, 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 long ago descendant. Um, but that doesn't really make any sense, right? He's in a good position here. He's just been promoted, actually, right, by King Ahasuerus. So I don't think he really cares about what's happened, you know, 400 more years ago at this point. Um, he's just ready to go with his new position, right? He's been given a new position of authority. He's been put in charge of some more things. He's feeling great. Everyone has to bow down to him now, right? And so he's going around, and every time he goes through the gate, the king's servants are bowing down and paying homage to Haman, uh, for this is the law, except for one man. Who is that? Mordecai. Why is Mordecai not bowing down and paying homage to Haman? He's a Jew. That's what he tells the people, right? He's a Jew. Now, we're not told specifically why, right? Other than he's a Jew. So what do we have to infer from that? Well, we know as good Bible students that in Exodus chapter 20, part of the law was that the Jews were not to bow down to other gods, right? And just from the phrasing here of the servants bowing down and paying homage to Haman, it tends to maybe imply that there's some kind of religious aspect going on here as well. We would know from our previous study in Daniel that these foreign leaders, these foreign nations, rulers, often made themselves out to be gods, right? At one point, Ahasuerus, earlier in his reign than, than this point, he becomes Pharaoh. And what we know about the Egyptians and their Pharaohs. They were considered gods, right? And so there is this idea of worshiping the royalty in foreign nations. Now, is that what's going on here? I don't know. We're not told specifically, right? It's possible. Is it possible that Mordecai is also kind of following along, you know, think about the timeline here. We are coming in after King Nebuchadnezzar. We're coming in after Darius, the Mede, all of whom interacted with Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and who put forth laws at those times that protected the people that, that served their God, right? Daniel's God. If you, if you serve Daniel's God, you are protected during Darius's reign, right? And as we know from the laws of the Medes and the Persians, as will come up later on in the book of Esther, when a law is put in the books, does it change? No, it's impossible to change it, Right? According to their own legal system, you cannot go back and change it. So when Darius did that, that is permanent. And that may have some impact here, right? Now, what it looks like is Haman doesn't even know this is happening yet, which I think is interesting. You you know, before when I've gone through this study and I've, I've looked at the book of Esther, it just seems like, whoa, Haman saw Mordecai and he's just, oh, I hate that this Mordecai guy, he just doesn't bow down to me. But when you read the passage, it says that Haman goes through the gate. All the servants bow down, except for Mordecai. And who notices it? The servants, right? Verse, uh, what, verse three? The king's servants are the ones who bring up to Mordecai, uh, hey, why are you not bowing down to this guy, right? We were all, we're all bowing down. Why are you not bowing down? It seems like they're trying to maybe protect him in some way, right? The king's law is to bow down. Hey, you really need to bow down, right? All of us, look at what we're doing. Okay, now do that, right? But Mordecai's not bowing down, and he tells him it's because he's a Jew, 
And so they try over time, we're not told exactly how much time, but it seems there's some period of time that's elapsing here, that the servants, you know, Mordecai's not changing his ways, he's still not bowing down, and so, well, you know, let's ask Haman about it. Maybe, maybe he knows, maybe this is for real, right? And so they go and they tell Haman, and just from Haman's reaction, what do we know? Yeah, he's not aware of any law about Jews not being able to bow down, right? <clears throat> he is enraged, it says. And you have to think that from this point on, every time he goes back to the gate, what's he looking for? He's looking for the person not bowing down, right? He may not have even known who Mordecai was, but now he's given a name, he's given a people, and when he goes to that gate, he's looking for somebody who is not bowing down, right? That's kind of what we get from his personality. That seems to be what's happening here. Um, he's enraged. I think this is a very interesting thing to, to kind of think and look at. What happened before he knew about the people? How was Haman feeling about everything? Yeah, before the servants came, he was fine. Everything's great. I don't have a problem, right? Just got a big promotion. Everything's going wonderfully. The servants come and tell him this one person is not bowing down. And what does that do to Haman? It ruins his life, right? ruins his life. And we laugh because when we think about it that way, that seems so silly and childish. And, you know, I would have a talk with my now three-year-old daughter and say, don't let this ruin your day, right? There's a lot of other things going on today. You can have a great day anyway. This one guy's not bowing down. That's okay. Forget about him. Move on. Do something else, right? But Haman can't do that. Why can't Haman do that? Pride might be part of it. Yeah, right? Yeah, how far is this going to go? He is, he is not following the king's law, right? And now I'm, I've been promoted by the king. I need to protect the king's law. So this might be maybe righteous motivation on his part. I don't think that's really it. I think that might be part of it, though. Helps him justify it. If he gets away with breaking the king's law, then who else is going to do it, right? If he, if he makes a mockery of me doing this and everybody else is seeing it, they brought it to my attention, then who else is going to start doing that, right? I'm going to lose respect of the people here in the city, in the capital. And then what about my peers? Everybody's bowing down to my peers, I guess, I'm assuming, right? Because it doesn't say in the passage. But they're bowing down to everybody else. They don't have this problem. And they're going to pick at that and they're going to make fun of me, right? Okay, yeah, that's possible. I don't know why. I don't know why he's so enraged, but he is. And what I think is so interesting about that, when we think about ourselves and what can we learn from this passage and learn from the example of Haman right here is how impactful one decision can be, one seemingly insignificant decision. Do you let the rage that you feel for Mordecai go? Or do you hold on to it? Right, what's gonna happen with that? Well, what's gonna happen, spoiler alert, is he will die. He will get himself killed because of that decision. But he doesn't know that right now. He knows he's very angry. So he has a choice right here. Do you let it go 
or do you do something about it? Right? He's going he's gonna to hold on to it. He's going to do something with that anger. What should our choice be? Right? There's a lot of things that happen in our lives that make us very angry. For me right now, the biggest one is health insurance. You know, I'm a type 1 diabetic. There's a lot of crazy things that go on with my health insurance all the time. They're very frustrating. Do I let it ruin my life, those feelings of anger, or do I let them go? Because ultimately, it doesn't mean that much, right? Is it frustrating? Yeah. There's a lot of frustrating things that happen every day, right? I don't need to let it destroy me like Haman does. I like true crime podcasts. I used to drive back and forth to Nashville every day. It was about a three to four hour commute, depending on the traffic. I have listened to a lot of podcasts. And a lot of them talk about, you know, what is the point that makes this person decide to do this horrible thing, right? They want to analyze and figure out like, oh, what happened to them that damaged them in this way that made them do this thing? There's some that come to the decision that, well, really, they were a very normal person that had a very normal life. And what happened is they were given an opportunity where they could do something wrong and maybe they'd get away with it, maybe not, might be something very small, or they could not. And based on that one decision and what they decided, if they got away with the wrong action, maybe they kept going until it got bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And it snowballed out of control into this horrible thing that they did. And I don't think that's unique to anything. It's just us as human beings. That's what we do, right? We were given a chance from the beginning to follow God, and we didn't. And what happened in the days of Noah because of that? Everybody died except for Noah and his family, right? I mean, if you're talking about percentages, it's not a lot, right? But that's the nature of us, right? If we're given to ourselves, if we let ourselves control ourselves and, you know, navigate ourselves through this life, these things tend to happen, right? And that's dangerous. We have to be careful. We have to think about that. Rage is the emotion that fills Haman. What do we know about anger? Yeah, it's, it can be a cancer, right? There's all kinds of passages that talk about anger. Uh, Psalms, Proverbs, right? In Ephesians, we see that anger isn't necessarily always bad even, right? God has been angry. There is a thing as righteous anger. We see in the Old Testament, in the Old Law, a lot of times where people are filled with the spirit of the Lord and they appease his anger in some way, Right? Uh, I think personally about Phineas, right? What did Phineas do? Well, the children of Israel were committing adultery with uh, the people of Moab. And so Phineas, with a spear, goes in and spears two people that are committing, you know, he's, he's having relations with a, a woman from Moab and he spears them through and that appeases God's anger, right? So anger can be right. But anger can also lead you down a place that you don't want to go, right? It can be very controlling. It can take over your life. You can obsess over it. And in Ephesians, you know, the passage that talks about, you know, have the right kind of anger, right? Ephesians 4, 26 through 27, it says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. 
right? You have to control it, you have to stop, and then you have to let it go. It's hard to let things go sometimes. It's hard to let things go that you know are gonna keep coming up, especially, right? Mordecai is not bowing down to Haman. Is that gonna change? I mean, obviously not. The servants have tried to tell him. It doesn't seem like it's gonna change. So they tell Haman, and he's angry. And every time he goes to the gate, he's angry. And so that anger just builds and builds and builds and builds and builds. And it doesn't seem like it takes very long until he comes to his ultimate conclusion, which is destruction, right? I don't know what it takes to make a person get to the point where they are willing to destroy an entire nation of people based on one individual's actions. But that's the point that Haman is at, right? Haman was in the wrong spot before he got to that point, right? But that's where he ends up. In verse five, it says, when Haman saw that Mordecai neither bowed down nor paid homage to him, he was filled with rage, but he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone for they had told him who the people of Mordecai were. Therefore, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, who were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. I don't want to get rid of Mordecai. I don't want to get rid of Mordecai's family. Uh, You know, we talked about this when we went through the study of Daniel, that uh, if you were Nebuchadnezzar and you displeased him, oftentimes what would happen is what? He would uh, dismember you and then burn your house down and all your family and stuff, right? That was kind of the typical Nebuchadnezzar thing, right? Don't displease me or... I'll dismember you and burn your house down. Um, Yeah, that's pretty standard. Would it be understandable for Haman to do that to Mordecai? I think so at the time that it's happening, right? But he doesn't want to do that. No, he wants to destroy all Jews throughout the entire kingdom of Persia, who at this time controls most of the world, right? So you want to annihilate a race of people. Okay, yeah, let's do that. So let's figure out what day, right? That's where he goes. Let's figure out what day. I don't think we should be shocked by this because if you look through our history as mankind, um, how many times has this happened? A lot. It's happened a lot, right? Even in our own nation, it's happened over and over and over again, right? People who want to eliminate an entire group of people. Why? I don't like them. Right? They don't deserve to be here. Why? Because of me, right? Because I don't like it. Um, that's very selfish. It's probably motivated by a lot of anger. And it's very destructive to that person, right? Very destructive to that person. There's a lot of control that you give up when you buy into this anger. You are no longer in control of your actions. When Mordecai goes to the gate, or when Haman goes to the gate and Mordecai's there, is this Haman thinking about his day anymore? No, he's not thinking about his day anymore. He's thinking about this guy who's not bound to him. He's thinking about the anger that he has. When he goes home at the end of the day, what's he thinking about? He's thinking about that guy at the gate who's not bowing down. Well, you have a lot of decisions to make, Haman, when your job. Well, are you thinking about those decisions? Probably not as much as you should because you're focused on this guy 
And how can I destroy him and his people and everybody everywhere that's even tied to him, right? He's obsessed. And sometimes that's what happens to us when we, you know, hold on to any kind of anger, right? Things in the past, things in our present, things that happen to us just out of the blue, right? There's a lot of destructive things that happen from anger and not all of them are to this scale. Some of them are much smaller, but they all end up being destructive in one way or another. And that's what the gospel, the scriptures tell us about anger and why it tells us that our job when we're faced with this kind of anger is what? Ephesians 4. Control it and then let it go, right? Control it and then let it go. So we need to remember that because we don't want to end up like Haman, right? Okay. He wants to get rid of the entire people of the Jews. So first thing we have to do is, well, we got to figure out what day. When do I want this to happen? Well, if you're Haman, the best way to figure out when you want it to happen is to roll dice, cast lots, let it's chance, or maybe it's my foreign gods that are deciding by chance, right? And so they cast what is called per, the lot. And it's cast at the first, uh, first month, which is Nisan in the 12th year of King Ahasuerus. And it's cast until they finally get the day and the month. And what they've decided is until the 12th month, 13th day, you know, they're going to, it's fine. It's not going to happen until the 12th month. So we have a year until this is going to happen, right? And so Haman goes to the king. After the day is selected, okay, now we have to get this law in the book. So I have to take this to the king. How do you present a law to wipe out an entire empire's, like, you know, essentially slave workers, right? They, they've used the Jews as slave workers for this long um, in a lot of places, right? In, in Nebuchadnezzar's day and Babylon's time and then carrying over into the Persian time until Cyrus freed a lot of the Jews and they returned back to Jerusalem. I mean, even the ones that didn't, they're still out there working, right? So you're talking about a giant economic shift at this point in this nation. You have to craft this in a way that Ahasuerus is going to side with you if you're Haman, right? Because this is not an easy sell. I think a lot of times we, we read through this and we think, oh, he just went to Ahasuerus and he said, hey, Ahasuerus, by the way, buddy, you promoted me. There's these people that are disrespecting me and, so, and they're disrespecting you because of that. And so we just need to wipe them out and that's it. That's it. We're done. Everything great. Okay, good with you. Good with me. Let's write the law. Okay, let's go have a, a party. Um, but no, this would take effort because you're talking about an economic deficit for Ahasuerus who is already at that point based on what we know about history, right? He's gone through multiple wars at this point. He's in the middle of these giant construction projects. He gave his, his, his uh, people a tax break when his new queen was selected, so he's lost all those funds. Now we're talking about wiping out a lot of that workforce, and so you have to justify this to the king. Haman knows his audience, right? He knows King Ahasuerus, and so he knows how to play the king, essentially, right? So in verse eight, he says, 
to King Ahasuerus, there is a certain people scattered and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from all those other people, and they do not observe the king's laws. So it is not in the king's interest to let them remain. All right, if you want to convince Ahasuerus of something, here's what we know through history. He hated revolt. He hated sedition. The beginning of his reign started out with the Babylonians rebelling. And so what did he do? Well, he came and he crushed it. And then they rebelled again, and so he burnt Babylon down. Egypt rebelled. What did he do? He went to Egypt, he took over, and he became Pharaoh. He crowned himself Pharaoh, right? He wiped out the revolt. He tried to wipe out Greece's rebellion, right? They were rebelling. He took a large army, the biggest army at the time. He took it over there, and he won some key battles. He burned Athens to the ground because they kept rebelling, kept resisting, right? I hate that. What do we do? Well, let's burn the city down, right? If you want to get a Hagiris on your side, tell him that these people you want to destroy are, going, are rebelling against him, right? And he'll, you, you probably got halfway there. So that's what he does. What's the second part? Well, the second part is, if it's pleasing to the king, verse 9, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who carry on the king's business to put in the king's treasuries. Here's our financial incentive, right? This is going to cost you to get rid of all these people. So let me foot the bill, right? If you do this, we put in this law, then I will pay for it to happen, and it'll go into your treasuries, right? So there's incentive given. What does Hagiaris think of it? Yeah, let's do it, right? Sounds good. Yeah, uh, checks all my boxes. Anybody, any questions? Okay, let's do it. Let's put it in, into law. So it gives him his signet ring. They send for the uh, scribes, and on the 13th day of the first month, and it was written just as Haman commanded to the king's satraps, to the governors who were over each province, to the princes of each people, each province according to its script, each people according to its language, being written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters are given, and they're sent out to kill, destroy, and annihilate all the Jews in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month to seize their possessions as plunder. How do we get the people to go along with this? Well, you put in a clause in the law that says, by the way, if you wipe out the Jews, you are able to take any of the stuff that you want. If you want more, more things, or you feel like they've gotten more than you and you want to take advantage of that, you can go in and kill them on this day, and then everything they have belongs to you now. You can plunder it all. Pretty good incentive, Right? For, for these kinds of people, the kinds of people that you're looking for, people who are willing and okay with killing their countrymen, right? Their neighbors, as it were. And so a copy of the edict's issued. Uh, every province, it's published in all the different languages so that everybody knows about it. And then in verse 15, the couriers went out. I, I like that it's written this way. It, it seems to me that like the couriers even are not... They don't feel great about this. They don't like what they're being sent out to do because they're impelled by the king's command to go out with this decree. And while it's issued in the citadel of Susa, King and Haman 
have a party. They drink about it, right? Let's toast the new law. But the rest of the city, the rest of the capital, what does it say about the capital of Susa? It's in confusion, right? Think about it from just the normal everyday person's point of view. You have a group of people that you've been living next to for all of your life, all of your parents' lives, all of your grandparents' lives. We've all just been here together. Okay, and now on this day in this year, you're able to just kill them all. What do they do? Is there, is there some big conspiracy? Has anybody been talking about killing the king? Are they actively in revolt in the middle of these cities? I mean, no, right? All they're doing is they're, they're there. They're existing. And now, from your point of view, we're being told by the king just to kill them all for no reason. If you're in a nation that is basically made up of a bunch of captive peoples, right? Other nations, right? Persia inherited their empire from Babylon who crafted their empire together by conquering a bunch of people and moving them all around, right? So there's a lot of people in this capital that aren't, they're not originally from there. They're from a bunch of other nations. And if this can happen to the Jews, who else could it happen to? And when could it happen? There's no warning. There's no reason. Here we go. I mean, that would, that would really throw your entire city for a loop, right? It'd be pretty concerning. And so in chapter 4, when we begin, Mordecai is tearing his clothes, putting on sackcloth and ashes, and wailing loudly and bitterly. It's understandable, right? It's an understandable reaction. You wake up one morning, what's on the news? Well, everyone's being told that at the end of this year, they are going to be allowed to kill you and all of your people and take all of your things. Yeah, that would be a good time to mourn, right? It's not just Mordecai who's mourning. Who else is mourning in every province where the command's been given? All of the Jews, right? And, and I think this is interesting because when you look at this and you think about this, in Jeremiah, these people were being told that there's this great punishment that's coming and then the punishment comes. They're, being, they're captive from Babylon and they're being told you need to repent. You need to do all these things, follow after God. You need to, you know, be broken, right? Because of your sin and they are standing stiff-necked and they were refusing to do that, right? They are fighting against God every step of the way. Here we have a very different group of people, right? You have a group of people that now you're being told that this is the law that's come down and all of them immediately respond in sackcloth and ashes and weeping, right? Very reminiscent of what happened with Jonah, in the city of Nineveh, right? Where Jonah goes to this city that doesn't know God and he preaches that they need to repent and they immediately weep and show repentance, show contrition, right? Put themselves in the same position, sackcloth and ashes, and they're weeping. I think it's very important to note that Mordecai is doing this, but he's doing it within the bounds of the law. Where does he not go in sackcloth and ashes? 
He doesn't go to the king's gate. Why does he not go to the king's gate? That's where he goes all the other times. Yeah, it's not allowed. You're not allowed to be there. So, okay, I won't, right? Very different kind of people. Esther and her maidens and eunuchs want to know what's going on. They hear, she hears, Esther hears from her maidens and eunuchs that Mordecai is in sackcloth and ashes. He's despairing. He's weeping. And this breaks her heart. I think this shows us what happens to a queen when they become queen. Basically, they become a prisoner in their own golden cage, as it were, right? Why does Esther not know what's happening? Yeah, she is in the castle where people are supposed to already know these things, but she's not a, she doesn't go to those places, right? She's not part of the government. She is a figure. She is a prop, basically, right? And so she's put in her place and she's kept there. And she has people that serve her, sure. She has some eunuchs that serve her. She has maidens that serve her. But she's not just able to know everything that's going on and make decisions or make her voice even heard most of the time, right? There are rules here that she's supposed to follow as the queen. There's protocols that she's supposed to follow. And so she doesn't know what's happening. She knows that Mordecai's weeping and she knows it's important. But she doesn't know specifically what it is. So she sends her servants and her eunuchs to Mordecai and she says, well, maybe he... Maybe if I give him clothes, he'll put on these better clothes. He won't be in sackcloth and ashes. But what does Mordecai do? He refuses it, right? It's not about the clothes. It's about this law. I don't think that's, you know, silly on Esther's part. I think she just doesn't know what else to do, right? What, what do you need, Mordecai? She doesn't know what's going on. So the one thing she can do is use the money that she has access to now and give him something that maybe he would need. Maybe he does need these clothes. We don't ever know what Mordecai's job is. Did you ever think about that? I don't know what Mordecai does. I don't know. He seems to be kind of connected in some ways because he knows a whole lot of stuff going on, right? But I don't know what he does for a living. I don't know what his economic financial situation even is. But he sent these clothes he refuses them, and so Esther sends Hathak, the eunuch, to go and find out what is going on and why, right? Not just what's happening, but what is going on and why. There, something's changed, and we need to know what's going on here. And so he goes to Mordecai, and Mordecai tells him everything that's happened. He gives him specifics. I think this is very interesting and kind of partly why. I bring up that Mordecai seems to know some things, right? He seems to have some access to some stuff. He knows specifically how much money Haman is going to give for this. He knows every detail about the law. He gives him a copy of the law, right, written out. So here you go. You can see everything that I have access to. This is what's going on. Take this to the king and plead for your people. So he gives her all this information, and he asks her to plead for the people. Hathak brings it back to Esther. And so Esther sends back to Mordecai. And she says, all the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces, in verse 11, know that for any man or woman who comes to the king to the inner court 
who is not summoned, he has but one law, that he be put to death, unless the king holds out to him the golden scepter so that he may live. And I have not been summoned. There's risk involved for Esther, right? And when we think about Ahasuerus and his personality and the things that he's done throughout his history, I don't think it's outside of the realms of possibility to believe that the first thing that Ahasuerus would do, if you show up and you haven't been summoned, is he would, he would just have you killed. That makes sense to me because of how he thinks about sedition and, and disrespect. And he whipped the ocean because it stormed too much. I mean, come on, right? You know, how dare you storm when I'm trying to cross you? 300 lashes. And the guys are like, I don't, what? Okay. Throw it in chains. Um, it makes sense that she would be afraid because yeah, there's real risk involved, right? Real risk. Maybe Mordecai doesn't know the risk. What's Mordecai's response though? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he gives three points, right? His first point is you won't be saved, right? This isn't going to save you. Don't think that royalty is somehow going to save you. It didn't save Vashti, right? It didn't save Vashti. It's not going to save it you. You will be killed too. Somebody else will take your place. Second point is the deliverance is going to come, right? There's going to be deliverance. If you aren't the way it comes through, though, you and your family will be wiped out. But there's going to be deliverance. It's going to come. And thirdly, how do you know that this isn't why you're here? You don't know why you're here, Esther, chosen to be queen. Maybe this is the reason. I think this is very important for us because, you know, first off, do we know that Mordecai believes in God? It doesn't say here, right? It doesn't say in this passage anywhere, Mordecai believed in God, and so he said these things. How do we know, based on this passage, that Mordecai believes in God? Right, yeah, the actions that he took, right? What happens after this? Well, they're, they're fasting and they're, uh, you know, preparing themselves for Esther. I got it, Michael. Yeah. So I think that it's, it's quite self, you know, his second reasoning that you brought up, and I'm glad you brought it up because I'd never considered it until this class is, there's no hesitation. You know, I'm a child of God, and yeah, we might be reading into it, but... There's faith there that they will be delivered. They're the children of God. And so, you know, if he is, he knows the law, he knows that that's what happens. You know, something's going to change. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. I mean, I, I think it's very clear in the behavior of all of the Jews at this time, based on the command, that there is a very big change in the people of God that we're talking about here. These aren't the same people that we saw in Jeremiah, right? That... We're stiff-necked, and anytime you said the Lord's going to do this, they're like, well, but I don't think so, right? The Lord loves us. We're great, right? Now it's, you're going to be wiped out. Oh, boy, right? We need help. What do we do? Well, we're all in sackcloth and ashes, and we're fasting, right? That, those are all religious things, right? They're, they're significant things, not just your everyday process you go through. 
I think it, go, it follows through on the same reasoning why, that we went through with Ahasuerus. And how do we know that Ahasuerus doesn't love Esther the way that God would have you love your wife? It's because look at the rest of his actions, right? Look at the rest of Mordecai's actions here, right? He's going to go with Esther's plan of fasting so that she can be prepared to go before the king, right? And that's what Esther tells Mordecai. She tells him, fast for three days. Tell the other Jews in the city to fast for these three days, and then I will go before the king. And if I perish, I perish. Sometimes, okay, wait, let's pull it back. Many times we have to do hard things. Do the stuff you need to beforehand so that you can do the hard things, right? Make it as easy as possible for you to do the hard things that you have to do on a regular basis. There's nothing wrong with that, right? If you have difficulty coming to church in the afternoons because you took a nap, and when you wake up from that nap, you don't feel great, stop taking the nap. Do what you have to do to make yourself get here, right? If you have to talk to somebody about a difficult situation and you pray beforehand to give yourself the strength so that you can do that, that's good, right? That's nothing, not something to be ashamed of. You're doing what needs to be done to do the hard things. And that's what Esther's doing here. And so we need to take that example. All right, thank you very much.